the scriptures, are they the word of God? Can we trust them? Are they authentic? Are they reliable? These are the things we're going to look at in this particular talk. Now, it's important to understand that there's 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. And of the 27 books in the New Testament, they were written from 40 AD to 95 AD. Now, the earliest copies we have from the originals from 125 AD, those books were penned from 40 to 100 AD. So there's about a 25-year span between the earliest copies that we have from the originals that they were copied word for word from. <clears throat> now, there's 24,900 fragmented manuscripts of the New Testament that we have in possession today. So, the closest piece of ancient literature that we have to compare it to to give a historicity test is Homer's Iliad, was written uh, with 643 fragmented copies that they still have in existence, was written around 500 AD, and the earliest copies that they have is like a 1,300-year span between its original and its earliest copies. So there's a lot of room for error with that. But when we look at the scripture, 25 years, there's no room for error there. And it was copied word for word. In fact, when we look at the New Testament, if we were to take all of the believers that have quoted from the 1st century, 2nd century, and 3rd century from the New Testament, you'd be able to put the whole New Testament back together just off those quotes. So we have a lot of evidence for the reliability of the New Testament, for the authenticity of the New Testament, and for its uh, genuineness. Now, with the Old Testament, the earliest copy that we had was from like um, 900 AD. And there was quite a long period of time between its earliest copies and its manuscripts. But the way it worked is because it was written in such an early, early time with the papyruses that the papyruses would get old and then the scribes would have to recopy word for word. And they had 10 strict ceremonies that they had to follow in order to preserve uh, the transfer of the copy from one old papyrus to a new one. And every time they would even write the word of God, they had to go through the ceremonial washing before they could even write a, the word God. So they were very strict. And there was a team of them that would recopy the New Testament. So the New Testament has a lot of evidence for its authenticity. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls finding, I think it was in 19, late 1940s or early 1950, they found quite a few books of the Old Testament that dated um, not 900 years earlier than the earliest copies that we had. And they were accurate word for word with just a few misspelled words. So the actual copies that we have are authentic they are reliable there's a lot of evidence for them not only that when we look at the scriptures we could look at prophecy as an evidence for the old testament and new testament there were 333 prophecies concerning christ alone in his birth his life 
his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And all of those were fulfilled in Christ. And in fact, the probabilities were done for just 12 of those scriptures, just concerning his coming and his birth. And the chances of one person fulfilling 12 of those scriptures was like in one in a trillion. And he fulfilled those scriptures and there's historical evidence of it. Not to mention, okay, archaeology. There's been cities like in Genesis that were named in a five sequential order. And there was this stone that was excavated thousands of years old. And on that stone had those same five cities in the same sequential order listed as what's written in Genesis. And many of other things like that. So we have a lot of historical archaeological evidence that confirms people that the Bible writes about, concerns, confirms certain uh, Caesars and different things like that, certain kings of the times that are written about, and a bunch of things. Also, we can look at the actual um, genuineness of the Bible based off of the fact that it's the best-selling book of all time. There's no other book that has sold as many copies as the New Testament and the Old Testament and the Bible together. And also, it's unique in this fact as well, that it was written over a span of 1,500 years. And this comes from Josh McDowell, very, very insightful, okay, by 40 different authors from all different walks of life across three continents and three different languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. And all of them have the same message. And all of them point to one person. All of them point to a central theme. All of them point to Jesus Christ and his testimony. Everything points to the cross. Everything points back to the cross. And everything dovetails in that book word for word, even though there was thousands of uh, almost 2,000 years that they, for the whole period of that Bible being, being written. So the likelihood that it would be able to dovetail like that from Genesis to Revelation and reveal all of the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament and Christ Jesus being revealed, all the types, all the pictures, all the shadows, all the ceremonies, all the feast, all those things Christ fulfilled. Christ is the evidence of the things that were hoped for and the substance of the things that were not seen, that all of those types, pictures, shadows, ceremonies, and feasts and festivals all represented. And Christ is the body of those things. He fulfilled all of those things hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later fulfilled it. So fulfilled prophecy is probably one of the strongest factors and evidences for the Bible aside from the uniqueness of it being written over 1,500 years by these 40 different authors across three continents and with three different languages, and yet all dovetailing and telling the same testimony, the same theme of the cross, the same story and plan of God about the fall of man, the sacrifice of sin by God being manifest in the flesh, living a sinless life so that he could lay his life down for sin and take the penalty for us on our behalf. But because he was the incorruptible God and he did not sin, he had to lay his life down because sin couldn't kill him. So he laid it down freely. And because he had not sinned, 
death could not hold him down as penalty. So he was able to pick his life back up again so that we could have the promise of eternal life and a resurrection by him who is the first fruits of the resurrection that is the head of a spiritual race that makes us a spiritual race when we come to him by faith. And that's the only prerequisite he asks, folks, is that we believe. That's it. I mean, what a plan. What a story. What a savior. What 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 a pl romance plan that God had to create a creation that he didn't program to want to have a relationship with him because it wouldn't be a true relationship. But he gave them a free will and a viability, a free will choice. And he knew because he's all-knowing, knows the end from the beginning, that they would sin and a tempter would rise up and deceive them. Satan, being the most beautiful creature in all the garden, became lifted up in pride and wanted man to serve him, got man to sin, and then he took the keys of death in Hades, and he thought that he was going to control man's destiny by using the law and going before the throne of God to get God to judge man based off of their violation of law. Like we see in the book of Job, Satan came and presented himself along with the sons of God and was accusing them so that their souls would be in jeopardy of the penalty of death and uh, the lake of fire. And God in his wisdom hid everything in the form of a mystery and reveals it in Christ and at the cross, towards the plan of Satan by fulfilling the law and showing that he is the perfect sacrifice for sin because it revealed that he was because he lived a sinless life and he was born of the seed of the Holy Spirit, not having the sin nature from the blood of Adam, but from the blood of the Father who is the incorruptible God and the eternal, the seed of the Holy Spirit, the sperma of the Word of God, that word seed is sperma there where we get the English word sperm, so that he would not have the sin nature. He would have no sin. He knew no sin. And in him there was no sin so that he'd be able to take penalty sin upon his body so that we could have a new and living way made for us so that out of our own free will, we can genuinely choose to want to have a relationship with God and want to do so because we see that God loved us and the fact that while we were yet sinners, he still died for us and divested himself of his glory and became a man because he loved us that much to be tempted beyond all the ways we were. And then with the humiliation of dying on the cross and being mocked and still rising from the dead, laying his life down for us and making a new and living way. In spite of all those things, and we could see his love for us and want to genuinely have a relationship with him. So the the romantic uh, plan of God and the romantic of redemption to have a true free will relationship with us as children of God and him being our father is it's un, it's unbelievable. It's it's the greatest love story, folks. So whenever we look at that, that is a strong evidence a strong evidence for the liability of Scripture because all of it dovetails and tells that plan of God, that story, that revelation of Jesus Christ and that new and living way that he made for us all. So these are reasons, folks, for why we can rely on the word, why it's authentic, why it's genuine, why it's original. Also, one thing in closing that I want to point out is that when we look at the Word of God, we can know that it's from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Inspiration of the Holy Spirit means that He's the author of the Scripture. 
How is that? Well, let's look at this, okay? In the Old Testament, God spoke to the prophets in Moses and Jeremiah, Daniel, Isaiah, and he said, Son of man, write these things down that I speak to you. Write them down and pin them so that the people will have these things. So these Old Testament prophets pinned down as God spoke to them. Moses on the mountain where God's meeting them at the top after it gives them the Ten Commandments and is speaking to them and telling them to write these things down. That's where we get the first five books of the scripture, which is called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Pentateuch just means the law. Okay? Now, in the New Testament, we have 12 men that Jesus hand selects and follow him for three years from the age 30 to 33 during his ministry. And not to mention, he tells them in John 14 through John 16, it's recorded, I'm with you right now. And all these things I've taught you, I'm going to go away. But when I go away, I'm going to send my spirit to you and he'll come to live in you. And he'll bring to your remembrance these things I taught you. You pen these things. So the scripture says they were taught by God. The New Testament that we have is the words that Jesus Christ spoke to these men as they pen the scriptures. So no scripture is a private interpretation, but it was penned by holy men as they were moved by the Spirit of God. Also, that's in Peter and Timothy. It says that all scriptures God breathed and is profitable for the godly person for instruction, reproof, rebuke, and anything pertaining to a life and godliness in Christ Jesus. So the inspiration of the scripture is from God, folks. It's, it's, it's the spirit of God, okay, that, that moved through these men and penned what God actually taught these men. And that is what we have in these books. And we can, we can rely on these books. They're a sure and steady foundation and anchor for us to hold on to. And in fact, in Hebrews 6, verse 16 through 18, it says that God swore an oath by himself, to himself, that there's nothing higher by which he could swear by, that he swore he would fulfill his oath and his promise, which is the everlasting covenant of the new covenant of grace, that he would fill, fulfill every jot and tittle of that promise. And there's nothing higher by which he could swear by, so he swore by himself. And by two things, God's immutable, meaning God cannot change, and it's impossible for him to lie. So since he cannot change and he cannot lie, he swore an oath. Every word of that scripture shall be fulfilled and come to pass. And he is the creator of all things and has preeminence over all things. And authority has been given to him in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That's Colossians 2, and that's Matthew 28, 18. And he shall bring his counsel that stands to come to pass. That is uh, in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, I believe, off the top of my head. Okay? He says, My counsel shall stand. I am God, and I declare the end from the beginning. So, folks... We got a sure and steady foundation. And since the word of God is true and it's reliable and it's authentic, then what it says is true. And Jesus Christ says, I am the way, I am the truth of God, and I am the life of God. And no man comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. So <clears throat> Jesus is 
the incorruptible God, the head of a spiritual race, the second Adam, who made a new and living way that we might become a spiritual race through him by receiving him by faith, repenting of our sin, disowning the old nature of sin, turning to him. That's what repent means to do a 180, turn away from something, to turn to something, to embrace it, turn to Christ to receive the new life he has to offer us, folks. And all as we have to do is receive him by faith and believe that he is the sacrifice for our sin and that he is the God and Savior, the resurrection of our soul, for our souls. And that's what our faith is in the resurrection. That if God rose from the dead and is alive forevermore to enforce his everlasting covenant, then we have that promise of a resurrection in him too. And he gives us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee that he will in the first resurrection glorify our body to a glorified spiritual body. That's the promise, folks. And guess what? It's not of works. It's not by being a good person. It's not by your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds. It's not by merits. It's by one thing and one thing alone. It's by an inheritance. And only a son receives the inheritance. And since Christ is the son of the Father, he reclaimed the inheritance at Calvary's cross in the resurrection and has preeminence over all things and receives the inheritance. And because we're identified in him as children of God and the only begotten Son of God from the bosom of the Father and the Eternal, we are co-heirs with him. He freely gives us all things as an inheritance. That's why you must be born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born of God. Why? Because it's through inheritance and only a son and daughter can get it. So you must be born of the spirit because God is spirit. And Jesus Christ is a glorified spiritual body and a life-giving spirit. So hope this gives you some insight and some understanding. You want to receive Jesus, repent of your sin, turn to Christ and come to him for eternal life. Thank him for the sacrifice of your sin. Repent of your sin and ask him to come live in you to be your Lord and Savior. And he will. And you'll become born again, folks. Hope this gives you some freedom and some liberty and some understanding that that eternal life is a sure and steady foundation. And it is an everlasting covenant. And nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And it also says that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There you go, folks.